Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. This was to be a book interview, a book of 592 pages on his 450 plus days at the White House. John Bolton, it was going to be a normal interview. It is not. Ambassador Bolton joins us this morning in the uproar of the current events. Ambassador, I look at the room where it happened, and I've got to get to a room on the first Tuesday of November and that Wednesday following where we may confront a President Biden. You've made clear you do not support President Trump. But as you look at President Biden, how does he take his very left Democratic Party, his liberal party, and how does he pull them back towards not you, but to the center, to the time of Scoop Jackson and John Kennedy? How does he execute that? Uh, I, I don't know. I'm very worried about it. It's one reason I'm not going to vote for Joe Biden, unlike some of my uh, conservative and Republican friends who have made that decision. I just philosophically uh, can't do it. I, I think it's a very unhappy uh, election uh, prospect for real conservative Republicans who understand, as I try and lay out in, in the book, The Room Where It Happened, who, who has no real philosophy. I'm not saying because he's not a conservative, he's actually a liberal. He, he's nothing. He doesn't think in philosophical or policy terms. Uh, so the day after the election, uh, if Biden wins, uh, I think uh, for the country, it's going to be a, a real test uh, of, of uh, whether a lot of this campaign rhetoric uh, turns into action. Let's just take the Russia uh, case as an example. For years, for decades, uh, the Democratic Party pursued policies vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union and then Russia that I thought were inadequate for the protection of American national security. I've, I've always favored the Barry Goldwater, Ronald Reagan approach. Now, now the Democrats are tough on Russia. Well, uh, better late than never, I suppose, is the answer. Will, will they be tough on Russia if Biden wins? Well, uh, I don't think we know. Ambassador Bolton, we can all agree that President Trump is not Barry Goldwater or Ronald Reagan. What we need to focus on, and my first of two questions on Russia before I go to my colleague, uh, Jonathan Farrow, is a simple idea of the back pages of your book. The heated debate this morning is were you involved in briefing the president or discussing with other intelligence community members, or indeed the Pentagon, about the Russians paying bounty hunters in Afghanistan to kill Marines. Now, you've stated to the Associated Press, that's not the case. I need you to recapitulate that right now. Did you, late in your term at the White House, did you speak to the president about these matters? Well, what I said to the Associated Press when that question was asked was no comment. Uh, and that's the same thing I'm going to say today. You know, the, we're embroiled in litigation now over uh, uh, whether I comply sure. with the requirements of the pre-publication review process, which I think I did. Uh, I didn't write this book with any intention of putting classified information in it. Uh, and I don't think Donald Trump wants to suppress the book because he's worried about foreign governments reading it. He doesn't want the American people to read it. Now, look, with respect to Russia and what they're up to in Afghanistan and a range of uh, places around the world. Honestly, this current controversy I could have I could have written about in the book uh, if if I didn't face these other 
difficulties. Su Susan Rice, uh, the uh, second Obama national security advisor, uh, writes uh, today in the New York Times that if she uh, had information uh, like that being reported in the papers, uh, whether it was totally verified or not, she would have gone into the Oval Office to tell President Obama. So without getting into what I knew or didn't know, I just want to say I agree with Susan Rice on that point. I think that's what the National Security Advisor should do. And let me just make one more point quickly. Th there are not two categories of intelligence, verified over here and not verified over there. Intelligence invariably is placed along a spectrum, and the intelligence community understands this. They say they have high confidence in some, uh, medium confidence, low confidence. Uh, people are going to have to judge, and different agencies will disagree. There's not some block of granite that you carry around to show to the president that's called verified intelligence. Uh, there's a range, and, and you deal with uncertainty. That's, that's, uh, that's part of the job. I look, John Bolton, at the Susan Rice essay and also the essay by Leon Panetta. I found them extraordinary in their heat. How would you recommend that President Trump extricate himself from this now, and particularly how he dresses the military at the Pentagon? Well, I, I can't offer advice on how to get out of a mess, in effect, he's created. I, I, by my count, in the last four or five days, he's told three different stories on whether he was briefed, whether he was told it was fake, uh, whether it's fake news by the New York Times, or a whole, whole range of things. And his advisors are now contradicting themselves as well. Uh, how do I view that in terms of the Trump presidency? Look, it's just another day at the office. That's the way it works. Every day is a new day. Every story is a new story. What you said yesterday is interesting, but doesn't necessarily dictate what you say today. What it tells the Russians is we are in disarray uh, and uh, and ripe for this kind of provocation, not just in Afghanistan, but uh, in many, many other places around the world. Ambassador, on this particular intelligence, is there any reason why intelligence like this would be put in the president's daily briefing and it wouldn't be followed up in person directly with the president himself? Well, I don't I don't want to comment on uh, this specific story and its intelligence implications for the reasons I said a minute ago. Uh, I will say this, which I do say in the book, Donald Trump doesn't consume intelligence the way uh, you expect presidents to do so. Uh, everybody's entitled to gather information in their own personal style. Ronald Reagan had his style. George H.W. Bush had his. Uh, I'm not saying there's any one that's right or wrong. Uh, and I think the presentation of intelligence to the president has to take that style into account. So what I'm talking about here is not uh, does the president read lengthy briefing papers? Uh, does he get it via movies and and uh, that sort of thing? The question for Donald Trump is whether he gets it at all. Uh, and I think he's uninterested in learning. Uh, I think that uh, that facts that are inconvenient for him often don't stick, despite repeated tellings. Uh, so. Can he say that uh, he was never briefed on it or that he thinks it's fake and get away with it? We'll see. Maybe, maybe he will. But this is a serious problem for the United States. You, you can say what you want about Joe Biden in policy terms. Uh, I think he uh, receives, processes, and retains information. I, I, think, uh, I think with Trump, it's much more questionable. Ambassador, something that's questionable for a lot of people listening and watching this interview right now is what you chose to put in the book and what you choose not to talk about. So on Russia, 
no comment. But when it comes to leaning on a foreign leader to help an election coming up in November, you seem to have no problem putting that in the book. Can you walk us through the process through which you decided what to talk about and what you don't want to talk about now? Well, look, I had uh, I, I have a continuing obligation not to reveal classified information, so I'm not going to talk about it. Uh, I didn't talk to the press about it during my time in office. And when I wrote the manuscript, I didn't intend to start then. Uh, I went through a very lengthy four month long uh, page by page, line by line, pre-publication review, at the end of which the government official conducting the review uh, concluded, as the government itself has said in court filings, that there was no classified information in the document. So that, that's what guides me in terms of classified versus unclassified information. In terms of substance, you know, uh, Simon and Schuster basically said, okay, you can have 500 pages. Uh, if they had said you can have a thousand pages, I probably could have filled that too. The, some of the book reviews that I've read complain that there are too many details. I think that's the stuff yeah. of history. Fortunate to have Ambassador Bolton with us live on Bloomberg Surveillance, both on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg TV. Ambassador Bolton, this was in the Wall Street Journal. It came from you. I want to quote it for you. Trump then stunningly turned the conversation to the coming US presidential election, alluding to China's economic capability and pleading with Xi to ensure he'd win. I would print Trump's exact words, but the government's republication, pre-publication review process has decided otherwise. Is this first-hand knowledge was that you in the room that overheard the president of the United States do that? Or was that also through a interpreter? Which one was it? No, that was that was uh, Donald Trump speaking in English. Actually, he didn't he didn't speak in Chinese and it wasn't interpreted back to us. Uh, the the uh, sentence that you read uh, was what I agreed in in the process of the of the pre-publication review to describe um, the the exact words that the president used. Yeah. So, John, help me out with this. What did you do in the days and weeks after that? How did you follow up after you overheard the president say that? Uh, look, there, there are a lot of things that, uh, that are done in an effort to keep uh, policy on track. And in, in that case, there were uh, extensive negotiations underway uh, for what turned out to be a partial trade deal. Uh, uh, there, there wasn't any way to take those words back. Uh, and I believe in the records of the Chinese government 50, 100 years from now when they're, uh, when they're probably released, uh, you'll see their notes uh, as to what the president said in that meeting. There wasn't any doubt in my mind on the Chinese side. They understood what was going on. It was not the only occasion where this comment yeah. about, about buying agricultural products uh, was made. Uh, you know, you, you have to go on doing the job that you're assigned to do uh, on, on a variety of fronts, not just uh, how many soybeans China buys in the next year uh, to try and keep uh, policy on track. Ambassador, this is the big issue, though, that undermines pretty much everything in this book. You were an advisor to this president. You overheard him lean on a foreign leader to help him win an election. You've served several administrations. You have served your country again and again and again. Yet you chose to wait to put this information in a book instead of doing something about it at the time. And I still don't understand why. Why? Well, I think it's uh, very straightforward. I, I have done something about it. I've given it to the American people who are the ultimate judges uh, of Donald Trump's performance. 
because of the way the Democrat advocates of impeachment in the House structured their effort, uh, they basically made it impossible uh, for uh, Republicans to participate in an impeachment process uh, that might have led to a different outcome. We, we have a model for that. This is not some hypothesis. In the Watergate uh, uh, crisis of the Nixon administration, Democrats and Republicans did work together. And while Nixon didn't go through a trial in the Senate, uh, he did conclude he had no choice but to resign. Uh, I don't march to Nancy Pelosi's drum. Uh, I did what I thought was ultimately in the best interest of, uh, of the country. Uh, because I wasn't going to participate in a completely biased process. Ambassador, I've got to jump in. I have to jump in. Why was it in the best interest of the United States of America to wait to put this information in a book? Thank you for allowing me to speak. The, the fact was that the Democratic leadership, the advocates of impeachment, uh, had, had uh, built a cliff, and they and a lot of other lemmings were heading toward it. Uh, I think it's very clear that uh, that had I participated in that because of the uh, malpractice that they were committed, that my testimony would have made no difference. And it's not just my, uh, uh, my belief. I think this is something that, as you saw in the debate in the Senate, uh, many, many Republicans bought the White House argument that even if you believed in the quid pro quo, the famous phrase that uh, reverberated through the hearings, even if you believed on the testimony that was given that a quid pro quo had taken place, that that conduct by Donald Trump did not rise to the level of an impeachable offense. That is to say, even if he did it, uh, that's not a ground to impeach and convict him. That's a legal argument. And the way that that, that came up was entirely uh, based on the Democratic strategy. Go on a narrow basis, just Ukraine, and rush it through. It turned out that was not only the strategy of the advocates of impeachment, that was Donald Trump's strategy, too. And what's the result of the failed strategy? Yeah. What's the result? The result is not that Donald Trump is deterred from this kind of conduct because he was impeached by the House. He is enabled to do more of this kind of conduct because he was acquitted by the Senate because of the failed impeachment strategy. So now yeah. we are left with what I think the framers of the Constitution really intended as the judge of presidential conduct, and that's the American voter. Ambassador, you've been very critical of President Trump. You've been critical of the Democrats and how they've conducted the impeachment proceedings. What about Republican leadership? Have they done a good job offering up a check on the president? Well, I think it's very difficult. Uh, the, the way uh, these past three and a half, four years have evolved, uh, for them to be as independent as I think many of them want. Uh, a lot of people who are never Trumpers say that the Republican House and Senate leadership is complicit. I don't agree with that. Uh, the fact is, nobody wants to be the subject of a Donald Trump two minutes hate, uh, to use George Orwell's uh, 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 idea uh, on Twitter. Uh, I think we're going to have to have within the Republican Party uh, a very significant conversation after November 3rd, especially if Trump loses, uh, which is at least a 50-50 possibility at this point about the future of the party. Uh, that's one of the uh, subsidiary purposes of, of the book in my mind. I want to make it clear that Donald Trump does not represent conservative philosophy. He does not represent the Republican Party. He is an anomaly. Uh, and I'm not going to vote for him for the first time in my adult life. I'm not going to vote for the Republican 
presidential nominee because I don't think he's really true to our philosophy. I think he's true to Donald Trump and Donald Trump alone. Uh, well, I think a lot of people. Ambassador, I want to break in here because the polls actually contradict that. The polls actually show that the Republican Party, by and large, has overwhelming support for President Trump. And that's the reason why Republican leadership has, more often than not, hewed to President Trump's ideas and goals. What makes you think uh, that the Republican Party is different than what President Trump has put out there in the polls are saying? Uh, because public opinion polls take a, a limited picture based on a limited uh, a limited question uh, uh, by the pollster. Do, do you support Donald Trump over the Democrats? Uh, what I'm talking about is the larger issue of what the party actually believes in. Uh, and in my conversations, uh, really across the country for an extended period of time, uh, I don't doubt uh, the, that uh, in this debate, I think uh, the, the Trump view will be rejected. Uh, I think it's part, it's an unfortunate part of, of our political dialogue today that it's all torqued around Donald Trump. Do you support Trump or do you oppose Trump? And there's really nothing else to discuss. That's, that's bad for the country uh, as a whole, and it's one of the things we need to correct. Uh, we'll have to correct it sooner or later. We, we may be able to correct it shortly after the November election. It may take another four years after that, but we are going to have to correct it. John Bolton, two more questions about the room and about your interesting book. I love what Fareed Zakaria said about it, that the details were damning. Would any of this have happened of Russians and bounty to the Taliban to go after Marines? Would any of this have happened if Mr. Trump had had his three generals in the same room? Was a great tipping point for the administration when those three generals walked out the door? No, no, I don't. I don't think so at all. And and uh, I was in the room with him a lot of times as well. He doesn't listen uh, uh, well. He doesn't absorb things. You know, uh, former Secretary of State George Shultz once said the the importance of listening uh, is always underestimated. And even Lyndon Johnson said, you know, when I'm talking, I don't learn anything. Uh, th those are points Donald Trump doesn't understand. And uh, we all made our mistakes. Uh, I, I certainly made my share. I, I try and lay out some of them in the book. Uh, I think things maybe could have been done better. I, I make that argument in the book. But ultimately, Trump is Trump. That's what the problem is. This is not somebody right. who thinks in policy terms. So a strategy in Afghanistan, uh, it's we, we, we haven't had a strategy in Afghanistan. Or, by the way, with respect to Russia, or with respect to China, with right. respect to on with respect to North Korea. The, the list is long. Ambassador Bolton, one final question, if I may, and you were very kind in your comments to Susan Rice earlier in this interview. If we have a democratic presidency, so much of this is the structure of the time of your hero, Barry Goldwater, and conservative democratic theology from no, of another time ago. And then we had a small matter happen, Vietnam, and the Democratic Party, many would say, has had a different foreign policy. Can Joe Biden, within the arc of his career, drag the Democrats back to some form of centrist tendency? Well, my, my comment about Susan Rice will probably get both of us in trouble, so so I, I better apologize to her in advance for that. Uh, I don't know what the uh, uh, what the fate of the Democratic Party is going to be. I don't think there is a Scoop Jackson wing of the party anymore. Uh, there there isn't even a Joe Lieberman wing of the party anymore, and uh, that that's one reason why I worry about 
Donald Trump, if the Republican Party doesn't remain the party of a strong, peace-through-strength, Reagan-esque policy, uh, I don't know who's going to do it. And I think that will leave the country in jeopardy. Ambassador Bolton, thank you so much for joining Bloomberg Surveillance uh, this morning. Right now, Vasilius Giannakis with us with Bank Lombard. Vasilius, as we readjust for Q3, we readjust to a resilient dollar. Will the dollar stay resilient? Hello, Tom, and uh, hi, Jonathan. Uh, no, our view is that um, I think the ingredients for, for a dollar downside are finally falling into place. Uh, look, the way we see it is that um, uh, basically there has been a significant decoupling of the dollar relative to fundamentals, whether you want to look at long-term fundamentals or whether you want to look at uh, uh, things like interest rate differentials. And the dollar resulted in being uh, quite substantially overvalued. Now, there was a reason why it stayed overvalued, and that was the pricing in a risk premium, initially the trade war, then uh, the virus. But the thing is that we're now moving into an environment where things are improving on a trend basis. Uh, in Europe, we have definitely have uh, quite improved virus numbers. It seems that Europe is getting it tacked together in terms of uh, the policy response. So we are getting the ingredients for a, for a rebound in the second half of the year. So I think that, that risk premium that supported the dollar are gradually being priced out and they're going to lead to uh, depreciation in the dollar in the second half of this year. Vesalius, I just wonder how many conversations with clients right now end up with you guys talking about gold. What are your thoughts on what's happened with gold? That's, that's a very tricky one. That's a very interesting one. Look, the, the way we see it, I mean, you have to look gold both from a structural as well as from a cyclical perspective. Uh, the reality of the matter is that we're living in a world of uh, zero interest rates. And when you turn to safe havens, for example, uh, sovereign bonds in, in the U.S. or sovereign bonds in Germany, you're not getting any yield um, uh, whatsoever. So when you're living in, in such a zero interest rate environment, you would like to have in your portfolio from a structural perspective something that can actually benefit materially uh, from uh, risk of episodes. And that is actually uh, gold. Gold has actually proven to be um, a very efficient hedge against uh, um, uh, resurgence in, in uh, risk aversion. So from that respect, we think that uh, there is definitely a middle element of structural allocation in favor of gold. In terms of the cyclical thing, yes, I'll admit that right now we're approaching 1800, so it feels a bit stretched and it potentially can uh, revert a bit close to 1700 or even just below. But, you know, at the, at the same time, the main driver for gold is basically what's happening in U.S. real rates. And with U.S. real rates being where they are, uh, pensioning in a significant downside, gold is really a difficult thing to imagine. Vasilius, we are done with half the year, half of 2020. Heading into the second half, how much conviction do you have behind your convictions? Well, look, uh, first of all, uh, there is a thing uh, that definitely relates to the virus, and that's one thing that no one can actually predict. No one can really predict whether we're going to get a second strong wave. But the reality of the matter is that now at least most of the government and uh, citizens do have the tools and do have the knowledge uh, to contain um, uh, pockets or uh, clusters of virus resurgence. So uh, I would put it this way. Relative to a month ago, uh, our conviction for dollar downside has definitely increased. Of course, 
if we get a significant virus resurgence, the second wave, we get um, pockets of lockdowns here and there, I'm pretty sure the market is going to uh, seek the safety of the dollar. But as I said, our conviction has increased over the last month or so. Vasilios, always love, enjoy catching up with you on this FX market. Vasilios Janakis there joining us on Foreign Exchange Worldwide. Right now, the bounty is out on Jan Lois. He is with J.P. Morgan. As I said, he wrote without question my research paper of last summer. It was just brilliant on modeling towards low interest rates. He has been dead on uh, on that and, of course, has new work to speak of as well. Dr. Lois, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Do you and Joyce Chang and your team, do you still believe in a persistency towards a shockingly low 10-year yield? Well, we're almost there. At, uh, the forces uh, that we've seen in Japan and Europe um, basically said the moment you get there, it's very hard to get out. Uh, and it's basically because... So as you lower interest rate, the saver needs to save more. You've seen big increases in savings rates in those countries. In addition, your lower interest rates initially have a positive impact by getting people to borrow more. But then comes the aftermath, the hangover. You got too much debt and you're thinking about delevering. That's what's holding you there for years. That's why Europe and Japan are still there. And that's the future looking for the U.S. also. So, Jan, walk me through what you expect from the Treasury market for this year, because a lot of people are starting to put that steepener on, the belief that yields at the long end will start to drift higher as the recovery grows a little bit older. What's your take on that? Are you pushing back against that view? Um, I am. I'm basically staying long duration till we hit zero. Uh, there'll be movements up and down that is possible short term. At the moment, I think we have to think a bit more downside risk. Um, I think the, the Federal Reserve, while not explicitly targeting bond yields, um, will basically say as long as no one's afraid of inflation, um, more is better than less. So I, I will be thinking about basically staying around these levels um, too lower. Uh, but there's volatility around it, obviously. Zero percent on a 10-year. Let's talk about the economic assumptions that underpin that view. What's your base case? What underpins that view of zero percent? Basically, caution and um, delivering. Uh, everybody's borrowed a lot. Afterwards, you basically slowly and not um, constantly, uh, as we've seen in Europe and Japan, um, you tend to save more and to cut um, your uh, debt load. Uh, corporates are cautious in this environment. I'm not going to be doing a, a lot of borrowing. I think governments actually, yeah, they'll do a lot now, um, but we'll look about it in the future. That These are your drivers. This is not about economic growth per se. This is about savings behavior and borrowing behavior. Jan, this is the paradox of the moment we're in. The zero rate environment implies a very slow growth economy, and yet investment strategists are increasingly pushing investors into riskier assets. And I think about your latest call on rejiggering the 60-40 investment model. Can you talk about that and pair this idea of going further into risk, going out of government bonds at a time of slowing growth? Well, the purpose of government bonds is to help you when you need them. Uh, when you're down in the equity market, then you, your governments can rally and give you offsetting, not full su support when you're losing on equities. The moment you're at these low rates, governments can't really do that much anymore. Uh, low volatility there, they can rally 10, 20, 30 basis points, but that's not that much more. So you know from here on, 
you're not getting much uh, return. A U.S. ag, which includes your mortgages and your high grade, are pretty guaranteed the next decade we're getting one percent return give or take 30 40 basis points on that so it doesn't do the job anymore where do you go now you can either stay there and save a heck of a lot more because you're not getting any return or you need to go into what we call risky assets two options one is equities um, and equities will give you a better return than bonds but most of us would agree about 5% over the next decade, so a lot less than before. And it remains very volatile. It can go down 2030, as we've seen um, in uh, a few months ago. The asset class I'm recommending is the one that is volatile short-term, year-to-year, but that nicely mean reverse. It goes up and down like the sine wave. Anything between bonds and equities, your high yield, um, your preferred your utilities, your real estate mortgages, the CMBS, all the stuff around that. It goes up and down, volatile short term, but half as volatile the moment you hold on five to ten years out. So you need a bit of patience. You can't be fussed too much about the short term. Think where you're going to be ending up in ten years' time, five to ten years. That means you need to be sitting in between bonds and equities. I call it the hybrid world. And Jan, a lot of people may scoff at the idea of taking more risk at a time of slowing growth. But Tom has raised this again and again, this idea, the pensions, the insurance companies, the retirees that need to earn income. The 60-40 split has given 10% returns for 40, 50 years. You expect them to deliver 3.5% in future decades based on where current government bond yields are. How do bankruptcies factor into this? And how much does your uh, assumption and recommendation now bank on the idea that the Federal Reserve and the fiscal... uh, the fiscal policies will support riskier companies and riskier assets going forward? I'm not assuming much. I don't really rely much on the Fed for the longer run. I know what asset prices are today. Issues will they avoid, say, a great depression with steadily moving down earnings growth, in which case you're not going to even get a positive return on um, equities. But equities can de-link from the overall economy. They have done over the last 30, 40 years. Much better return than the overall economy. So you have to think about corporate earnings um, and valuation. The economy is something separate um, over here. Um, pension plans, uh, they've already been moving uh, away from pure government. They don't have much left. But they're sitting in mortgages, they're sitting in a high grade, but just not doing a lot more. They have private debt, uh, yes. I think they've already moved a bit up to the risk uh, spectrum. They reduce risk by being in private assets because they don't get mark-to-market on a day-to-day basis. And I'm trying to get them to think more in between. Yes, long-run growth stocks uh, look like the, the, the most attractive assets, but they're extremely volatile, even over a 10-year basis. Best to kind of notch down a little bit. Um, you, you get much better returns to risk if you really pile in between the bond and the equity market. Hey, Jan, really appreciate your time. Brilliant to get you on the program this morning. Jan Lowy there of JP Morgan, the Long-Term Investment Strategy Senior Advisor. 
Right now, this is a really wonderful interview. It's far too short. We could spend an hour with Stacy Whitlitz. Uh, really interesting, starting out as a buyer in department stores uh, and then going to real torture as a legit security an analyst on the street and now running a really wonderful consultancy out of London and New York on retail trends. Uh, Stacy, let me ask you an open question to get started. Where are we going to be in six months? Where are we going to be going into the holiday season? Good morning, Tom. In six months, I think we're going to be floating in discounts still. And that is really the big issue going to the second half of the year. Um, you saw, you know, today Capri reported, Macy's reported, and margins are way down. Everybody's taking inventory charges. Everybody's trying to clear and get clean for the second half of the year, and it just can't happen fast enough. And the other thing you're going to see Do is they... that retailers... Sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Finish, please, Stacy. I was just going to say that retailers also can only have a certain amount of traffic in their stores for the second half of the year. So are we going to have Black Friday? Are we going to have these huge traffic-driving events? Or are all the promotions going to move online and push the consumer even more so online? What does digital online demand do to bricks and mortars? I mean, for you, I think of Oliver uh, uh, Oliver over at Cowan. I think of Richard Burke, uh, Robert Burke, rather, running Bergdorf, Steve Sadoff. For you as a retail industry, what does brick and mortar actually do? What is their action in the next six months? So it's interesting. So because so many brands have seen their online penetration double overnight, I mean, Nike said, you know, their expectations, they did in three months what they were supposed to do in two years. So that does a couple things. It it makes the stores have to fulfill from store. People are doing curbside pickup. So the stores are becoming almost pickup points or warehouses. And for the amount you pay for that real estate, it's a huge amount of money. The other thing is that we're seeing a lot of appointment only. You know, it's going to be that 80-20 rule again. You're going to serve your customer by appointment only, that 20% that makes 80% of your business happen. And the rest of it flows online at a lower margin. And by the way, it increases returns when you move online. So then the stores get flooded. I've Accelerating into year end. Lisa, I think we're just getting started on that end. And that is because, of course, now that everything is fully open again, we're allowed, now we can actually look at the inventory, we can look at the real estate, we can look at the brands and say, what are they worth? What's, what's forward? Um, we couldn't do that in the last, last few months because everything was closed and all the stock was stuck on a boat or locked in a store. So now this is just starting to open and it's at a really interesting time because we're going into holiday. So it's, it's unprecedented what is happening right now. And I think into next year, we're, we're just getting warmed up here. All right. So what do you expect in terms of which might be the next one, Stacey, going forward? Which is the next big retailer that's the shoe to drop that might mark the wave of the next bankruptcies? Well, I think in the near term, um, you're going to see the drip, drip, drip of store closings. And we've already heard that. So Nordstrom has announced 10% closures, Macy's 20%. I think Macy's looks, looks more like half the size it is today in a couple of years. So I think that's, that's the first thing. I think we're going to see you look at malls. You know, we may see 30 to 40% fewer malls in the U.S. I think that real, the real estate prices, the rent, the battle between the landlords and the retailers is, is crazy, the lack of collaboration. Rents must come down if you're doing fewer of your sales by nature in store. 
So I think that the entire nature of retail changes over the next year. Stacey, we're lucky to get you on the show this morning. Appreciate your time, so thank you for joining us. Stacey Whitlitz there, SSW Retail Advisors President. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.